All right, guys, on the podcast today, we have Jerome Maldonado. He is a house builder worth over $100 million. We're going to teach you how to build a house, how to build wealth through real estate, and a bunch of great stuff. So I can't wait for you guys to see it. What up, Jerome? How are you, baby? Doing good, bro. How's everything? Good, good, good. Excited to have you on the podcast. I know you guys just had a really big event here in Las Vegas, right? We did. We had our Build Wealth Summit just uh, about 45 days ago. Yeah, it was huge. I saw so many great speakers. It looked like a lot of fun. It was fun. Yeah. So um, I want to have you on the podcast because I know you're a big wealth guy, right? So I know you you do a bunch in real estate. So for people who don't know who you are, can you give us your quick intro? Yeah. Um, I... I guess my claim to fame, I, I'm an entrepreneur in my eyes by, you know, by first, by first profession. We own a bunch of stuff. Yeah. But I've been labeled as a real estate professional in whatever righteousness yeah. that is. You yeah. Know? For tax purposes uh, too, yeah, I'm for, sure. Whatever it is, you know. <laughs> so so I, I I do a lot of ground up construction. We've uh-huh. owned a lot of value add stuff. We build, we develop, we've mm-hmm. flipped, we've wholesaled, we've done everything. Got it. You know, they we we utilize a lot of uh, what's in the real estate space as tools for everything that we do on a day in day out basis. Got it. So like, give me some of your highlights, like how much real estate do you own or what, yeah. like what's your stats? So we, um, so we still have a little over a million square feet of retail, which is what we actually predominantly invested in on the commercial asset side from about 2000 up till about 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, after the re- the great recession, we pivoted into a lot of multifamily mm-hmm. Uh, we did a little bit of value add stuff after the recession because of the good buys that were out there. Mm-hmm. And then when the market, I felt the market was um, was actually uh, teeter tottering, um, and I thought we were going to have a recession sooner than we did. Uh, about 2018, I got into the ground up game mm-hmm. um, in multifamily aggressively. We started looking at it in 2016, mm-hmm. and so we have over a thousand units that we've built ground up. We have um, a thousand we, units that you guys built. Yep, ground up on multifamily. Wow. And then we have uh, a little over a million square feet of retail, some of what we bought, some of what is a uh, value add. And then we have um, 2023 was a tough year. Um, we, we thought we were going to pull $160 million worth of development out of the ground. And we pulled $27 million out of the ground. So not a successful year from a standpoint of growth, mm-hmm. um, but it is just the circumstances of uh, banking. And uh, so 2024, we're expecting to be an extremely busy year because of what we set back in 2023. But attainable housing is what our big push is right now in the real estate game, predominantly in the multifamily game. But but we're still dabbling in a lot of different sectors. Okay. So, you know, before you had a million square feet of commercial and a thousand apartments, like how did you start in real estate? Um, Kind of on accident. You know, I was in multi-level marketing in the 90s. Um, the FTC shut us down in 97. Um, we, I struggled for a while, but we landed up making some money in multi-level marketing. And so when you went from struggling to making some money and then to zero again, it sucks. So I was like, I never want to go through that shit again. And I opened up a little concrete company um, on accident. I, I didn't even know there was money in construction. I didn't have any construction background. Um, I just, I did it because uh, a buddy of mine was doing these uh, classes and I, I, uh, and I had no idea that there was money in it. And I took these concrete classes to do decorative concrete mm-hmm. um, here in Vegas, in fact, um, back in 1998. And um, I started a little concrete company and um, it was lucrative. We made, we did over a million dollars the first year we were in business. We mm-hmm. netted out a few hundred grand. Okay. And um, and that was, and I said, okay, I got a, a few hundred grand. What do I do with it? I don't mm-hmm. want to go uh, dip back down again. And I started buying single family rentals. Mm. 
And so I just bought a couple of rental homes. That, that I think in 1999, I bought two rental homes. Um, landed up, um, I bought them in Albuquerque. Okay. Yep. And then I um, landed up buying a piece of land because we were doing concrete and we were doing foundations. And I saw this builder that would show up clean every day, not like me that was in the mud, literally, mm-hmm. um, pouring, pouring concrete with college buddies. Mm-hmm. And so we, uh, I landed up buying a lot next to this guy and building a house. And we made about an $85,000 profit on the first house we built in 1999. Mm-hmm. So I said, shit, man, I've got to ante down on these. And so I did two. And, um, and they, those were so profitable that I landed up uh, becoming a big builder. You know, we were, we were crushing down a bunch of builds. It's actually what made me a millionaire um, mm. just a few years later. Um, we did enough and I could actually see it, right? Like when you can pallet and see where the money's coming from, that's where you can visualize like growth. Mm. And so by 2001, I, um, I had had a business model that put me in a position where we were able to net out over a million dollars. I knew I was a millionaire after taxes. And, um, and then that's where economies of scale started to happen Yeah, until 2008. Yeah. So let's talk about that because I think, um, I talk to a lot of people that are like, you know, I want to make a million dollars like yeah. all the time. Like that's the magic yeah, that's number, right? And I'm like, all right, so how are you going to do it? And like, well, I'm just going to go harder at my job. I'm like, all right, how much do you make at your job? Like 5K a month. I'm like, well. Yeah. Yeah. You gonna <laughs> yeah how are you going to yeah, do that? Yeah. It, doesn't, it literally doesn't make sense. Yeah, and yeah. I, I don't like to just, you know, crush people's dreams. So I'm like, okay, well. Yeah. Go for it. Well, I'm doing this with my kids right now. Like, I mean, I was walking through Fashion Mall last night with my son while we're waiting for my daughter's uh, cheer competition. And and he's at a point now where he's just starting to drive. He's about to turn 16 and he wants his own money, right? Because mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. we walk into uh, Sun, uh, what's that, Pacific Sun or whatever it is. And um, he wants these shirts. And it's like next week's Christmas. And it's freaking Christmas in my house every damn day, man. Mm-hmm. My kids get stuff every damn day. And... Um, and so he's frustrated because I wouldn't buy him these T-shirts. And he goes, um, he goes, I just want my own money. I'm going to go get a job at Whataburger, McDonald's. And I go, oh, Jacob, great. just stay focused on, <laughs> let's build these houses. I do want you to get a job this summer. But I, I see, he goes, he goes, I'm just going to make a ton of money. And I said, well, he has a buddy that his parents own a roofing company. And this kid gets everything he wants. They yeah. buy, I mean, he has the newest skis. He has the newest um, clothes. He has the newest everything, always. Mm-hmm. And we don't raise our kids like that. Yeah. Because I didn't come from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I told him, I said, you're going to get a job, but I said, you need to pay attention to what we're doing and you're going to build a house. Cause that's my whole thing with my kids is you got to build a house before you go to college. Um, mm. you're senior year in high school and I'm going to teach you the ground up game because then they can make a quarter million dollars and go to college with it. Right. Mm. But I'm not going to, I, at first I was going to do it where daddy bought the land and daddy was the loan. And I said, no, now that I have students that we're doing this way, I said, bad idea. Teach them how to do an owner finance deal, right? Mm-hmm. On a piece of land. Cause then they can do it. Cause he asked me the other day, he goes, well, I don't even have the money to buy the land dad. How am I going to buy the land? I said, I'm going to do what's called owner financing. So I'm educating him on what owner financing is. Cause daddy's dumb. Daddy doesn't know shit. Yeah. Right. That's just kids. Kids. When you're a dad, you're just dad. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. You yeah. Don't know nothing. I know. So, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm so, starting to get that. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, and they, they're, they know better, but they still have that yeah. type of facade to, to, to the whole play of uh, fatherhood and childhood. And so I tell my son, I said, look, so I pulled out my phone. I literally pulled out my phone, watched the fashion store mall. I said, okay, how much are you going to make an hour? He goes, I'll make like 17 an hour. So we're at McDonald's. He goes, I'll make at least minimum wage. I said, hey, what's minimum wage? He goes, it has to be like $17 an hour. So I Googled it. It's 12 bucks an hour. 
Which is great. Yeah. So, which is great. <laughs> so, you know, I started with minimum wage was 385. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, like you're making five something. 12 bucks an hour. Yeah. So I'm like, so I go, okay, you make minimum wage. Let's call it 13 bucks an hour. He goes, I'm a good worker, dad. And you go, you are a good worker. You, dad, you are. I said, uh, okay, so let's say they start you at 13. Okay. How many hours can you afford to work playing football, doing everything that you do? How many hours can you work a week? Yeah. So we did. I said, 200. So I go, okay, 13 bucks an hour, no taxes, 260 bucks a week. Mm-hmm. So a week, I guess 260 bucks. And I said, yeah, 260, that's what you get. Mm-hmm. I said, now let's do one house. He goes, because he's, it's going to take too long, dad. I got to wait to do, do the house. It's going to take too long. I said, okay, well, let's see how long it's going to take you to make the 250,000 you'll make building a house with working at McDonald's. So I reversed it in. I said, oh, Jacob, I said, it's no problem. If you start today, it's only going to take you 17.8 years. Damn. Okay. Yeah. So you could take 17.8 years to make that at McDonald's. Yeah. Or we can get to work now and in six months, you can make it. How would he make 250K on a new build? We, we, our business models, we only service the upper middle class. So the house builds have to be up in excess of 500,000 and under a million. The area that we would be building in, the house is sell for 800 grand. So you buy a lot for $125,000, $130,000, costs you $150, $150 a square foot, $155 a square foot to build. It's about 380 bucks. $380,000 to build the house. Mm-hmm. And then I told him, I'm, we own a, the brokerage, so he has the advantage not paying the 3% on the selling side because we'll list it for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'll, he'll list it, but and uh, but we'll pay the 3% and the one and a half to the title company. So four and a half percent, probably another 50,000 bucks. <clears throat> so if you add up the numbers, it comes out to be over $200,000 in profit. Damn. You know, the debt service on it will be about $12,000 on a, on a loan. I'll call all co-sign on him, but he has to pay the bank because if he has to pay dad, he's not going to pay dad. Yeah. Pay but bank. if he pays the bank, yeah. he has to pay it. Yeah. Okay. So I teach him about credit and stuff um, because we we didn't do the traditional entrepreneurial way of raising our kids. We utilize sports to do it mm. for discipline. So, but now my I got my son's attention, right? So he, so then he starts to see it. But I said, but I think it's a great idea for you to have spending money, you know, make a 260 bucks a week, whatever it is, while you're doing it. While you're building a house because it doesn't take a lot of time. You learn how, that what it's like to work for somebody else and how to manage money for gas, fuel, insurance, whatever it is. You know? Yeah. Um, but um, for someone that's new, that's what they need to look at, right? Like it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen overnight. You got a resume into it. Mm-hmm. It didn't happen for me overnight. I started in 1993 on my entrepreneurial journey, and I became a millionaire in 2001. Mm-hmm. So it took me eight years, you know, mm-hmm. to hit it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was young. I was in my twenties. But I still hit it, right? Yeah. But I was at it hard yeah. for eight years. Yeah. Hard, you know? So we, um, so, but you got to have a vehicle. Yeah. That, That's the point I was trying to make. Yeah. So people want to make a million dollars. And then I'm like, how are you going to do it? Dude, I'm just going to work harder. I'm like, yeah, you know, you have to have well, it's vehicle. common sense, dude. You work hard, but you, you can go from five to maybe six, maybe seven. Yeah. But you got to be in the right vehicle. Yeah. But in their defense, I was them. I was, I was them too. I was them. I, I was I just, them too. I didn't know what that vehicle was going to be. So, so if you're watching this and you don't know what your vehicle is, get in you, real estate. You got, yeah, Keep you got to get in real estate. <laughs> get in real estate. But, but what helped me was I was pouring concrete, you know, mm-hmm. so maybe so I can get in construction. It. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I didn't think I was going to be in construction. I mean, yeah. I kind of stumbled across it, but I saw opportunity, you know? Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is like, I think you just got to dabble out there a little bit, especially if you're young and you got to find, um, oppor- you, you got to learn first, right? Like what really helped me make money in, in concrete wasn't the concrete because I'm sure people know broke people that own concrete companies that are yeah, broke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So what really made it for me was I learned the fundamentals of sales and business, 
through a lot of good mentors, you know, and some of those mentors yeah. were books. Some of them were through seminars and, and going to events like the ones we throw, the ones mm -hmm. that, that um, you know, it's coming up with uh, you guys here in the office. Yep. And so anyways, you know, being in proximity to the right people and getting your mindset right yeah. makes a big difference on that yeah. journey. What about, if you don't mind me asking, like, because you said you became a millionaire in 2001. Yeah. How much are you worth now? Like, what what do you like? Yeah, so our net worth with? now, you know, we have over $600 million in holdings, uh -huh. but net worth, we're probably right about $100 million. Oh, you know? damn. So. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we have a good net worth. Damn, <laughs> can I borrow some money? <laughs> okay, so you have $600 million in net, $600 million in assets owned. Yep. And then- Probably, oh, I guess like 500 or something like that. Keep it. Yeah, you know, it depends how you evaluate assets, right? Yeah. So I always kind of keep it arbitrary. Real estate's real subjective because, you know, if you if if you compare it to what the value of that real estate was just two, two years ago, it was double what it's worth today. Yeah. You know, so like worth I, was I worth a billion dollars? No. No. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. It's all, it's, it, you know, so the, the numbers are, are arbitrage in real estate because- you know, they're subjective to the market conditions and got it. and stuff. So, but you think you're worth like at least a hundred million, right around there. We're hovering around there, depending on how you, yeah, how you evaluate our assets. And got so it. So, how how? And again, if I'm going too far, let me know. But I'm just gonna push it because. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how much liquid cash at your level do you think it's important to have? At my level, you got to have several millions that you have liquid at almost any given time. Mm. So, I mean, we, we utilize different tools for that because you just don't want it sitting there. Um, so we, we, a lot of our liquid assets are in the stock market. Oh, okay. So it's still liquid, but, um, but it's invested. Got it. So now that bonds are good, we have money invested in bonds. Um, but you know, stocks are great. I love the stock market. Uh, most real estate guys down on the stock market. Yeah. And, um, I've used it as a tool. It's mm. been a great tool for me. Yeah. Yeah, because so for me, right, I'm not worth $100 million. I wish I was, though. But um, I would say I'm worth between 2 and $3 million. Yeah, um, But for my, I'm a, I'm a flipper, right? So I flip yeah. houses. So for me, in order to be kind of safe, honestly, I should have about 250 in the bank at any given time. Yeah. But that's not like, okay, I got 250. I'm going to invest that into flips. Yeah. That's just rainy day fun. And yeah, then yeah. the rest of the capital needs to be out like moving, moving and, and working. Yeah. 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 So in, in bank accounts, we'll always have like a couple million dollars in bank accounts at any given time. And I'll give you an example why. Like last uh, November, um, we were doing a phase three on a loan. Last minute, um, literally 48 hours before closing, the bank comes to us and says, um, you guys need to come to the table with another uh, $1.2 million in yeah. interest reserve. Yeah. And um, we had two choices, either pony it up or raise it. Yeah. Or not close. Or I guess we have another alternative, right? Not close. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And alone. So um, so at that level, we just don't know what the banks are going to call out, especially in this market. right? hundred percent. Yeah. So it's important to have that liquidity because um, you just never know when you're going to need it. That's amazing. I mean, yeah, hearing that is super inspirational. So I guess like before I get into how you became, you know, worth more than a hundred million dollars, like what does it feel like? Do you just feel super rich or do you still feel broke? 
I still feel broke. broke. Yeah. I still feel broke. <laughs> <laughs> really? Are you serious? Are you joking? No. <laughs> I, we have a good life, man. I mean, there's times I do. I was like, damn. Like, I mean, even just the other day, um, God, one of my partners calls me up and he goes, because I mean, banking sucks right now. So like, I, you know, I went to one of the Berkshire Hathaway meetings and um, somebody gets up at the Berkshire Hathaway meeting at the annual meeting, yeah. the big one. Yeah. And um, um, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger would allow people to get up and ask questions in this one thing. It's one point in time in the meeting. Um, and they're all stockholders, right? Yeah. And she asked and said something to the nature of, um, well, it was when he had just bought Apple, like the, yeah, yeah. the, the shares in Apple a few years ago. And she goes, you know, X amount of billion dollars is just a lot of money. And she goes, yeah, there was a time I thought so too, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, and so I guess it's all perspective, right? Yeah. Um, when you're bu- at that level of Warren Buffett, a billion dollars just doesn't seem like that much. And he talked about it. He's like, he's like, look, you know, like when you're buying a majority shares of some of the biggest companies in the world, you feel limited on what your ability to buy that is because you only have so much money. Mm. It might only be so much billions, but it's still, you're still bottlenecked. Yeah. Right. So everything's in levels. And um, like the other day we were going through a loan and we were going to use um, a company that isn't a bank. Um, they're a non-traditional lender that just does multifamily and um, they invest their own capital. Yeah. And um, one of the things is, is we had ponied up all our financials and they go, they called us up and said, um, and I thought they just hadn't looked at all the financials. Right. And he goes, um, um, do you have $5 million of additional liquidity? And I said, oh yeah. I said, did you look at my financials? And he goes, he goes, yeah. And he goes, and I said, oh, you, you received them from my CPA. And he goes, yes. And I go, so you need like a total of $5 million in liquid, in liquidity for me alone. Cause I have another partner yeah. still. And he goes, no, we need additional 5 million. Uh-huh. And I was like, and I was like, okay, so additional to everything that we both brought to the table, you still need an additional 5 million. And then we, we yeah. went through traditional underwriting, right? So we go, well, when do you need the, the liquidity by? And he goes, well, the next 30 days would be good. Yeah. So we had to figure out a way to, to liquidate $5 million. Wow. In 30 days, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so you feel a little broke in the moment, you know? <laughs> yeah, so you're, you're like, like damn, you're like, oh, I got to come up with $5 million <laughs> yeah, of my yeah. own money that I yeah. can't just get, you know? So you got to liquidate. So you have all this money, right? But it's all tied up. Right? Ah, so, okay. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not that you don't have the five million dollars, but you don't have it like right at your fingertips. The addition, because I mean, it's like an additional five million dollars. And there's people that are at that level where that five million dollars, like, oh yeah, I got another five million. Yeah. And we are at a level now where we down our financials substantially to lenders um, because our attorneys and asset protection guys uh, instruct us to do so. So we do. Um, where at one point in time we're flubbing to go up on them. Yeah. Now we're doing the opposite. So that's yeah. a good feeling. Yeah. You know, um, to be downing our assets. But yeah, I mean, it's all relative. I mean, we're not broke, like literally broke. We we live a good life. We do whatever yeah. the hell we want to do. But to play the game at a high level, sometimes yeah. you feel a little bottlenecked at certain points in times, mm. you know? Yeah, because, so I remember when I became a millionaire, and this is random money talk, but I remember I became a millionaire finally, and then um, like a million in equity. Yep. I was like, all right, dude, I'm for sure over a million dollars. I remember I called my friend. I was like, dude, guess what? Showed him. And I was like, craziest part i still feel broke <laughs> yeah yeah i'm actually more yeah. scared right yeah. now than i yeah. when i had yeah. nothing because yeah. then yeah. you're just like shoot i don't want to lose this and then i yeah. can do more and then i remember first time i had like a million in the bank i was like all right like i feel a little bit less 
stress for sure. Yeah. I was like, there's definitely there. So Once I, you hit that million mark, it doesn't you doesn't feel like nearly as much as you thought it was gonna feel. Yeah, hundred percent. Like. Yeah, I, I felt richer when I made 10k. Where I'm like, damn, yeah, I got 10k. But in the you bank? have expendable capital. When you're trying to grow, man, it takes yeah. everything you got to to grow, right? Yeah. So you always feel broke. Like my wife made statements in prior. She was like. We're the richest, we're the brokest rich people I know. Really? Like we're worth millions of dollars, but she's like, because there'll be certain points in time where I'm like, okay, we're getting this loan. We're trying to scale to this. Like, don't be buying, spending money on dumb shit. That's right? so funny. She's I was like, going to say that too. Yeah. And she's like, if my wife doesn't spend money, she's like, she's like, okay. Yeah. But my wife's like super simple. Yeah. 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 But I was like, still, it still feels that way. So you're like, and, and there's times where she's had to correct me, man. Like we're, where she's like, look, we're working too hard. You, it's absolutely ridiculous, but your mind's telling you that you just need everything. And like really the $500 that she might spend ain't going to move the needle on a multi-million dollar project. Yeah. But it feels that way. Yeah. You see the Louis Vuitton bag. It. You're like, dude, you're going to freaking bankrupt this company. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. It was like yeah. 300 bucks. You're yeah. like, still. Yeah. That's the point. That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I remember too, and then we'll transition to building houses. But I remember one time I was like all in. I had so, I had all my money in flips, like all of it, like all of it. And I remember I went out to eat and I was just stressed over the bill. I was just like, geez, dude, I yeah, shouldn't even yeah. be paying for this $30 yeah. Peruvian that's why food. I just, that's why I just paid, man. <laughs> like even the other night, man, after we we had the meetup, I, I we got to dinner. I invite a couple people, man. And um, and, and not, not that I'm somebody like special and great, but dude, if I was taking somebody like me to dinner, I would freaking figure out a way to pay the fucking bill. Yeah. Nobody does, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like everybody, it's funny, man. I watch just to see, because I'm already like, I'll pay Yeah. Cause I hate that freaking feeling, but I like to see everybody when they drop that bill on there, man. It doesn't matter. Like people that are saying they make money or not, everybody kind of squirms a little bit. Right? Oh yeah. Yeah. And so I just pick it up, you know, I also, and then everybody's like, oh gee, thanks man. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. You don't have to. And then later they're like, oh, I got, I got, I got it. Come yeah, out yeah, of yeah. pocket later. And, and, um, you know, I just pay it now. You know, I just, I, I, I just assume that every dinner I go to, I'm going to pay it. Yeah. And then if I don't, it's like surprising because it's like one in, once in a blue moon where like yeah. somebody's like, there is no way you're freaking paying this dinner. Yeah. And, and you're like, like, I'm like, they're a good person. I guess. <laughs> yeah, like, well, that's good. Because I pay for they're freaking a good person. all of them. But all right, let's transition to building houses. So say someone is listening to this yep. and they want to build their first house. Yeah. What are the steps to do that? Um, they got to find a business. So they got to understand a business model that's financially lucrative. So I always tell people, don't, don't go after the masses, right? Because- if you're competing against like Dr. Horton, Pulte, Lennar, KB Homes, all the big builders, those guys are building in volume. So their margins are smaller. So if you try to go up in, in, in profit largely against those guys, you're not going to do so because you have to compete with them. And because they're, they're, they're building in scale, you'll never get there. It, you'll work harder than what the time is worth. You'll make more money wholesaling homes, right? Okay. Whereas if you go in and you do like ultra wealthy, you might make a, a one-time hit if you're lucky enough to sell it, but there might be... But the, the 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 amount of people buying is compressed, so you yeah. have like maybe one to three percent of buyers out there. Okay, you know, at any given time, so you're just eliminated ninety eight percent or better of the home buyers. That's hard. Yeah. So I always tell people like the market that we focus in is in the upper demographics of the upper twenty four percent of the middle class of of home buyers. They're the people that are constitute for fourteen percent of the cash buys on homes. Um, and they have money. There are people like our moms and dads, our grandparents, people that have lived in one or two homes. They've scaled up. They've, um, they've paid off their mortgages over 30 years. They've mm -hmm. worked, they have equity and they have expendable capital. 
And so I said that 24% of the upper demographics of the middle class are is where the money is. Got it. Because um, they're not living month to month, paycheck to paycheck. Recessions like financial um, interest, high interest rates and recessions like we we've, are just living through now or coming to the tail end of God willing is um, they don't get as affected. Everybody gets mm-hmm. affected by it. They just don't get of as course. affected. Yeah. See, first you got to understand a business model where their money is. It's mm-hmm. lucrative, right? Um, I think people try to force business models. When you reverse engineer a business and you you have to understand where the money comes from. Yeah. So when you're when you're building a house, you go, you have to reverse into the numbers. And um, when you say, okay, well, if I'm building a $750,000 house, um, like I talked about with my son, um, and you buy a lot for $100,000, $120,000. And if you understand what bill, real bill costs are, and you negotiate with your contractors till you get to that bill cost, because the, mm-hmm. the, the the contractors are out there. Um, you go in and you first buy, look for a demographical area that supports the business model. You mm-hmm. just don't go buy land anywhere. Mm-hmm. Then once you find an area that supports that business model, that's where you look for land. Got it. And then you, you you tie up the land there for a lot of people that maybe are coming in just starting, um, don't have the ability to buy the land. Yeah. Um, tie it up on an owner finance contract or just do a delayed close, um, you know, and talk to the seller and tell them, look, I'm going to build a house. I need a construction loan. I don't actually have the land for the cash, uh, the cash for the land, but um, I, I do have the ability to get a construction loan. And if you can give me uh, 60 or 90 days to get some architectural prints put together, um, we'll close on it when I get my construction loan. Um, but in good faith, I'll put $10,000 down as earnest money or $2,000 down or 5000 whatever. It depends on the, mm-hmm. the price of the lot, right? And um, and then you can go in for a modest amount of money and tie it up. Mm-hmm. And then you have to understand there's um, an entitlement process even for residential. And it's basically you going in, designing the house mm-hmm. and submitting for permits. Once the set of plans, the, the blueprints are – in a, in a fashion where you can go submit them for permits, you can now submit those also to the bank. And now they have something tangible to appraise. Mm. And so now they can take that, those tangible prints and appraise it to fair market value, which you've already done because you ran the comps. That's why you're there. Mm-hmm. So you already know what the price is going to be on those homes. <clears throat> now the bank has that same capability to doing so. Yeah. So now you're able to get a construction loan. The bank actually pays off the lot for you on your mm. first draw. Oh, okay. So you get a construction loan and then the bank pays the lot off for you. Yep. And that that's one way. There's yeah. multiple ways that we teach people how to do it. They can do an, an owner finance deal and do and owner finance a lot all the way to the end of the bill. They can get private money, hard money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they, what about like, okay, so first you pick an area where you're gonna build, you know, what type of home you're gonna build. Yep. Um, then you start looking for lots and then you try to negotiate seller financing or whatever the case may be yep. to finance whatever a lot. options you may be exercising. Where I think most people fail, and correct me if I'm wrong, is like finding the contractor. Because yeah. I've known people that try to build. Yeah. They go out, yeah. they they pay the contractor, and then for some reason doesn't yeah. get finished or the plans don't get fully approved or the contractor yeah. quits or they take the money. So like building building's pretty easy. Um, so most people are pretty capable of doing, of, of being a contractor. There's a lot of people that are watching, especially if this is your podcast and you're doing fix and flips. Like if you've done a fix and flip, uh-huh. you're plenty capable of building a new house. Fix and flips suck, man. They like, <laughs> truth be told, sorry, bro. Sorry, bro. 
I mean, I Damn. just, you know, I mean, I don't know, man. I yeah. just, my whole thing is like for the a national average, you're making 30, 40,000. Yes. And then you, you go and you make this 30, $40,000. It takes you every bit of a, a couple months to get the construction done. Plus the yeah. resale time. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're in the deal for six months, you know, yeah, six yeah. months. Yeah. Right. So yeah. uh, my whole thing is I can control my variables and make four times that building new. Right. So what's like the average net on a new build? In our demographics, the average net's between 100 and 200,000, someplace oh. in there, depending on the lot. There's some variables in there, Got right? Um, and it doesn't have anything to do with contractors. It does if you don't know what you're doing, yeah. but it predominantly has to do with the land, the land itself. The land, how, ex- yeah. how cheap you get it. How cheap it is. And then also um, impact fees and utilities are a big variable. Got it. In that. Um, but outside of those variables, once you understand those variables in your given area, the variable now now you're in control of those variables because you understand them right yeah. in your area, so now the contractor is the issue. So for those people that are already have somewhat construction experience in being a fix and flipper or um, you know, or whatever it is, home value add or, or home yeah. renovation, yeah. you've done your own product. You can build your own home. Really, you can do an owner build. Yeah. And, I'm almost tempted to build a house now. You're giving yeah. me a lot of confidence. Well, and here's the thing. Like I've, I've ran into people where they say, Jerome, I tried building a spec house and I lost my ass. And I've yeah. met those people. Damn. And it's and, and most of it is because they didn't know the business model. Yeah. You know, like I'm giving them the business model now to a certain degree, um, right? But if you understand that, because people go in, they have this thing going, I'm going to go build a million dollar home and I can make 400 grand on it. Yeah. Yeah, but your risk is too high, man. Like why? I'd rather just take a $200,000 profit and know the shit's going to sell. Yeah, yeah, do yeah. two of those and make 400 grand, mm. right? Instead of like trying to make a, make a slam dunk home run. Yeah. And almost the vast majority of people that tried building a spec home that failed, that was the case, that they went just went too big. Yeah. They went too big into a, too big. a luxury market that yeah. just doesn't pallet returns right. And when you go into a compressed market, the first asset class that gets hit is the lower demographics because mm. those are the people that are pressed financially. So the median home buyer gets pressed. You don't want to compete in that because that's where the fix and flips come in. They also get compressed because you're trying to buy a house at a baseline. You're trying to add value to it and then sell it at a premium. Yeah. Well, when the market compresses, people don't buy what they want. They buy what they need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they don't, they don't want, they, they would love to have a, a, tru- a fully renovated house, but if they have to buy an old home and renovate it themselves over time. They'll do that. They need the home, so they'll do that over Paying a, a premium, a, pre, a premium for a yeah. house, right? So, and if you only have a, a a small marginal profit in there, that profit goes towards lowering the price to get rid of the project. Yeah, you know, Ryan, I just talked about. That's what he said this year was for him. You know, on all his uh, on all his properties. Yeah, that well, it was a, it was a washout year where he just was trying to get rid of inventory. Oh yeah, yeah, hundred percent. So with these, you'll still profit. Like even in two thousand eight, we still. I think my lowest profit was like eighty some thousand dollars. Okay, so how do you find a good contractor to build a house? Yeah, so the way I do it, like I do it this on multifamily with in the scale, and I do it big. But you go into an area, um, you do it just like hiring an employee. So you, a lot of times, I will find out who's building like in that area, and mm-hmm. I do that through like the real estate brokers, the real estate agents. Um, who are they selling lots to? Right, like what are the contractors are they selling lots to? Mm-hmm. Um, so those are first, that's a good first outreach. You look at their homes, they're in the area, you know, the quality of what they're building. So you know what you're, you, you know what you're getting. Um, then we also do an outreach through third party sourcing like Angie's list or home advisor, or some of these places. Right. Um, and I, I know what I'll do is like, I'll have my office we're doing it for multifamily and I'm going into a new area. I would just have my office set me up appointments with every multifamily general contractor in the area. And I'll just simply Google 
multifamily general, um, general, multifamily general contractors in Washington state, whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a process of elimination. So we'll go in and I make the best use of my time. So first we'll send out um, an, an email to all of them. And typically we'll have a set of plans already, or at least conceptual drawings. Say, hey, um, first and foremost, you know, um, I want to make sure that you build this asset class, right? Um, and this is your bucket because it might mm. not be. They might only yeah. do like little it's residential garages or yeah. ADUs or yeah, something, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. So we want to make sure that they even do what, what we're looking for. So we'll do an outreach to friggin' everybody. Yeah. And we'll send out our plans to everybody. Then we wait to see who gets back to us. Yeah. And we usually will do that two or three times because sometimes they just won't see our email because they don't have our email in their database. They don't know who we are. They think they may be getting solicited. So we'll do it twice, giving mm -hmm. them the benefit of the doubt. Now, the ones that we get by referral, the ones that we think might be the better ones for whatever reason that is, um, we'll call them directly. And mm -hmm. so I'll do an outreach of like 20 to 20 contractors and say, hey, my name is Jerome. Yeah. I'm, I'm migrating into the Phoenix market <clears throat> and mm -hmm. I'm looking for general contractors that can help me mm -hmm. um, with some of the our ground up builds. Yeah. Um, you know, do you do, you know, our builds are usually X amount to X amount, like, you know, 500,000, a million dollars. And um, we do a lot of three bed, th um, two bath, two and a half baths with three car garages, single story. And we cater to the upper middle class, empty nesters and retired folks. Is, is, this a, is this a product that you, one, you feel comfortable building and two, you even have interest in building. Mm -hmm. And some people may say no, and some people are going to say yes. Yeah. Some people say yes, and then they don't show up. Mm -hmm. So then we uh, say, and they'll say, so we'll ask them if they're open and taking a look at a set of plants, and then we'll email out to all of them. Got it. And so, and then we go from that product of elimination um, to a, a second one where we uh, start talking to them about what they charge, how mm -hmm. they charge, right? Because um, there's different ways that contractors charge. They charge, they can do a cost plus model, which they charge a percentage of labor and materials. They do a bid model, which typically they'll just bid the project. Mm -hmm. They'll do um, a flat fee which mm -hmm. is great. We love flat fee contractors. Um, or they'll do a, um, some of them will even um, collateralize their equity if in the build and pay, get paid on the back end mm. if, you, um, if you hire them, which gives them an incentive as well. Yeah. Especially when you're new. Yeah. You know, and uh, it's a good bear of entry. And, um, and then some of them will even do it as a consultant just to mm. get you a light, uh, some permits. Yeah. And then you can go build it yourself. Got it. So there's different ways, right? Yeah. So we start talking to them about that, and then we do an on-site with like maybe half a dozen to a dozen contractors on-site. Mm. And so we're looking at different things when we do the outreach, right? So we, we start setting them up at 8 a.m. in the morning, mm -hmm. um, sometimes earlier, and we just we schedule them back to back to back, Yeah, you know, every contractor. Yeah. Who shows up on time? Who, if they don't show up on time, do they at least communicate with us, mm. right? So it's like an interview process Yeah, for the best guys, right? Yeah. They, they fit your business model. They fit, they fit your business model in regards to what you're building. Now they fit your business model in the way you want to pay. Mm -hmm. Then you eliminate some of them that way. Now, um, who are they as a person? What's their character? Mm -hmm. So now that's what we're interviewing for third. And so then we get them all on site and we talk to them. We, we meet them at the lot. There's nothing to look at because it's dirt, but there's a set of plans and a tailgate mm -hmm. to a truck typically or, mm -hmm. or a hood of a car. And um, you're unfolding these and you start talking to them and you ask them what their bandwidth, what their scheduling times are. You're asking them, you know, what... Um, and then you address like some of your concerns. Say, you know, most contractors are paying the ass, you know, do you have references? You know, uh, you know, obviously we don't know each other, but mm -hmm. I, I want to know you. And we just want to make sure that you truly have the capabilities of uh, performing. And this is at the time where you don't tippy toe around stuff because if that offends them, 
fuck them. You don't need them. Yeah, they're, they're yeah, the wrong yeah. contractor, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is where most people tippy toe, and it's not. This is where you blast your contractor. Yeah. When you meet them on site, you blast them because then you separate them, right? Yeah. So now if you have a dozen contractors that showed up that you met with over the course of two days, mm-hmm. maybe you met six each day, now you're down to five good contractors. Mm-hmm. You know, you blast the shit out of them with those type of questions in a good way. Um, and I'm a pretty intense guy. So when I blast them, you know, yeah. they're like, okay, this guy ain't fucking around. Right. So, yeah. um, he, and, uh, and so you just, you know, it's just really about, um, like you're interviewing them for mm-hmm. a job because you yeah. are, yeah. you're getting a job from me. And how do you get, how do you stay protected in case they, you, you end up hiring the wrong contractor? Like, how do you protect yourself? Yeah. You, you got to ensure your build and you and follow the process, be involved. Um, so if you hire the wrong contractor, um, follow the process. Um, like for us, it's easier for me to say because like our students have a regimen they can follow, right? Mm-hmm. And since we have, we're in the education space, um, I tell them, you know, to stick to the program you mm-hmm. know? and uh, with the resources are available to them and we're available to them as well. Mm-hmm. Our team is. And so, so it's a lot easier for them, but for somebody that, that it does, isn't a part of our community or part of our team, you just have to ensure yourself. You got to get, make your contractor, get builder's risk insurance and general liability insurance, you also get a general liability policy and have them make sure that they, you are labeled as additionally insured. So you mm. have the certificate of additionally mm. insured and that way you're protected. And that way, if they leave you, leave you in a compromising position that you can't finish the build or you're mm. struggling financially to finish the build, you can hit their insurance company for something so you can get some some capital back in mm. from their insurance company. Got it. You know, for punitive damages. Yeah. So- um, so anyways, those are, that's one way. Um, the other way is if you pay attention to the process, the process is not that hard. I would, I would tell people, if you're going to get, go to the magnitude of building a house, go drive subdivisions, yeah. um, where Pulte and DR Horton are building. And yeah. one of the reasons why is because you'll see the different pr- processes of wh- what the, what the process of building a house is. Yeah. Okay? And, and on the cliff notes, by the way, remind me, we, um, um, I, well, there's a PDF that is a breakdown. Now, obviously, not everybody's going to understand how to fill out the the breakdown of the PDF. Yeah. But I'll include it um, for you guys in the show notes. Yeah. Where it's a step by step the sequence of building a house in in um, sequential order. Got it. Of how okay. to do it. We'll put so it in we'll, the description we'll of this video. Yeah, because it'll help them out, and it just gives you the sequential order. So if a contractor doesn't perform, you just pick up where the contractor left off. Yeah. And what I do um, to protect myself is I get the subcontractors telephone numbers right off the bat mm-hmm. um, because one I want to, and the way I do that is again, on the front end is the place to do it. Not, you don't want to be collecting subcontractors, phone numbers in the back end when you're about to fire your contractor. Oh, so you got the main contractor and the subcontractor's Absolutely. information? Yeah. Because I want them to um, sign off release of liens. Mm, you know? All of them. Yeah. And so I'll get, you know, so that's part of your due diligence, right? Like that's your house. In 2008, I had built a retail center. Everybody was going through financial distress. The market was tough. We landed up having a contractor, um, a block layer that was because the, the retail center was built out of a block that uh, didn't pay the concrete company or the pump company. Well, later on, we found out like two years later that he never paid them. We had a lien on the property. We we put the property up for sale. And mm-hmm. when the title company went and ran ran the property, there was liens from the concrete company and the and the um, and the pump company. And we landed up with, that's happened to us on a couple of projects early years. And we said, okay, no more. Now we need to be in control of all of this. And we need to yeah. make sure that our release of liens are not just for the general contractor, but also for the subcontractor. Got it. And then like, let's just say building a house in Las Vegas, that's like mid to not luxury. Like 
I don't know, the median or above. Yep. What what do you think is like a fair price per square foot to build? About one hundred and fifty five to one hundred and sixty dollars a square foot if you're building it yourself. Um, between one hundred and fifty and one hundred and sixty is what the national average is, and that is truly what it's costing to build. But when you say building it yourself, like I don't know how to do anything, so I would need them. Yes, to, you like, do. Build you're it. doing fix and flips, man. Yeah, but I can't. I can't even change a toilet. Yeah, but my you, wife built. But you're going to hire a subcontract, but you know how to use the telephone. Yeah, you know, get these guys scheduled. You know how to manage people. Yeah, yeah. So that's all you need to know how to do. So, but you're saying I would subcontract it, not have a general contractor that would do everything, yeah, and just subcontract it all out. So, I what if I anything. hire a contractor? How much would that cost? A general contractor? Yeah, yeah. You're going to usually it's going to usually cost you about fifteen percent of More? the cost. Yeah, got it. So, one hundred and fifty to one hundred and sixty dollars a square foot times fifteen percent extra. About that. Yeah. How much do plans and permits usually cost? That's all. It's all dependent on the municipality. So, in within city areas, urban areas are going to be a little bit more expensive. Um, you know, you, it might cost you for impact fees and everything as much as twelve, fifteen thousand dollars. Got it. Um, or if you go into sub rural areas that um, aren't as affluent, there's not as much impact because the roads, curbs, gutters, maintenance for that city aren't isn't as expensive as a more urban. Yeah. Um, place that you'd be building at. Um, so you your impact fees and everything might be closer to like seven or eight, which is actually the national average. Yeah. It's about seven to $8,000. So there's land, plans, permit, contractor fees, building fees. What other fees? Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of fees in there, right? Like there's a lot of nominal fees, architecture, surveys. Um, How much are those? So, you know, soft costs, you know, usually cost you for a house. You'll spend... For architects, engineers, everything, you'll spend probably under $10,000. But that's including your build cost, too. Got it. Oh, that's in the 155 Yeah. Yep. So where do you think, if someone wants to build their first house, where should they focus their energy on in the process? Uh, finding an area, demographical area that supports um, a more affluent um, buyer. What about the, designing the house? Because I suck at design. Yeah, it's architects, right? You, architects will help you with that stuff. But uh, the way we did it initially is I went and took pictures of homes. And then I'll, I'll tell you that that's probably the hardest part. That was probably the hardest part for me. It doesn't seem to be that hard of a part for a lot of people. Um, there's somebody in their family that has an eye or an act for it. Yeah. It was really tough for me. So I really relied on my draftman at the time. And he, I had a book, and I still have this book. It has like 2,000 drawings that he's done over the course of time in this book. And I just flip through them to the square footage sizes that I'm looking for, and I, and I pick a, fl a floor plan that looks good. Um, what I do is I, I try not to um, reinvent the wheel. So a, a lot of times, like let's say Dr. Horton has um, some homes that the, the, the floor plan works, right? They're yeah. selling it. You don't have to compete with them, but you can poach their floor plan and make it a nicer home than Dr. Horton builds but utilize what sells. Can you, you know? copy it? Oh yeah. Straight up copy it. Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Cause that, that was another thing that I was worried about. Cause I was like, what if I build a house and then the design is off and it doesn't sell? Yeah, it, it can, it can happen. I had a kitchen where I made the, the breakfast nook too small and I had to move the cabinets around on a center Island because it pushed in too far. And that one thing made my house sit for a few months. Got it. Because, and you have to pay attention to customer reviews when you sell your houses too. Yeah. You'll make some mistakes, you know. Most of them, you know, people like an, a wide open floor plan from the kitchen and the family room, the breakfast area, um, the breakfast nook. 
if you stay with the fundamentals, you'll do fine. Yeah. They, people, women love big closets and, um, and they like, um, nice pantries, stuff yeah. like that. You, you kind of follow that, that model. You're going to, you're going to do okay. What about like, how long should it take to build a house? Like in Las Vegas? Uh, right now, because contractors, there's uh, a lack of labor. There's a labor shortage, probably six months. We used to do 120 day builds. It used to take us four months to do them. Damn. Do you um, build in Vegas? Uh, no, but I used to do land entitlement in, in Vegas. I did Got a lot. It. I used to sell the D, um, to DR Horton and it wasn't uh, into uh, Kaufman and Broad, KB yeah. Homes. Yeah. And those guys back in the day. So you think six months? Um, yeah, six months is what it takes to build a house. Can you share? Because nice we're, we're getting up on time, but can you share one of your worst and best new build stories? Yeah. So my worst new build story was uh, 2008, obviously. You know, I think it's probably the worst. Um, I did everything wrong on this one build. And you get sloppy, right? So like I was crushing it. So everything was sell. Everything yeah. was selling. Yeah. You know? So it didn't matter if the kitchen was jacked up. Didn't matter Sounds if awesome. you positioned it by, yeah, <laughs> right, by, by a busy road. Yeah. So you learn a lot. So you go, okay, when people have choices, they have choices. And if yours doesn't meet, um, um, fit the boxes and, and you can't check mark the boxes – it's going to, it's not going to sell. Um, you know, so I stay away from houses that are backing busy roads, especially in semi-rural areas. If they're in a inner city, it's different, right? Yeah. It's more normal. Um, yeah. But, um, I had a house that, um, that I'd built. We had been building in this 2,500 square foot range where we were building these perfect little three bedroom, two and a half bath houses, three car garages. And I said, I'm going to scale in. I wanted to scale into million dollar homes. Mm-hmm. So I thought that's where the money was. So in 2000, um, seven or eight or whatever it was, I decided to take on a few 3,000 square foot homes that were like 3,000, 3,100 square feet. Mm-hmm. And I built them and there were four beds, um, three and a half baths and um, just everything got just slightly bigger. And then I, I couldn't sell the damn houses because the mm. price went up, you uh, know? So yeah. so one is more expensive. And people kept saying, well, because the area I was building, the, people were mostly empty nesters. They're like, well, we really don't need a four bedroom house. We would buy it, but- you know, we'd have to buy it at X amount, which is basically the price of the three-bedroom house. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, I couldn't sell it for the price of the three-bedroom house, or I was going to take a scrub on the rest of the, the of the rest of the build, mm-hmm. right, on the square footage price. So I learned at that point in time that you know you got to stick to um, a business model that's that's doable. So that house sat. Not only did it was the, not only that the kitchen cabinets went too far into the breakfast nook. It was like a center island and I opened it up too much. So I just, so I landed up until I was stubborn. I kept saying that I wasn't going to change it and it would not sell. So we landed up having to just bring that cabinet down like that. Mm-hmm. And the house sold the next week. Damn. Yeah. It's crazy. I had, I spent five grand changing cabinets, recutting granite, Yeah, you know, readjusted, filling in the voids on the floor area um, for the tile and flooring. Mm-hmm. It was a pain in the ass. For two mm. weeks, but mm-hmm. then I took me two weeks to do those renovations to the cabinets. But then it had been on the market for like six months. Oh wow! And then like the next week, it sold. Mm. Got it. So you just got to pay attention to those details. You got to build every house like you're in a recession. That's not a bad. That's not that bad of a story. I feel like I have way worse stories. So oh yeah, new building might. Yeah, I mean, I still made eighty some thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah, on that build. Jeez. I mean, I, th- I think I no, I'm sorry, I didn't. Not on that one. I lie. That though, that house I landed up. That was my lowest uh, profitable house. I was making about eighty five thousand dollars post recession, 
just barely pulling out of it. That house, I landed up making $48,000. That's still really good. Yeah. So, yeah. and that's why I tell people, like, I like it because that's how I even got, I, I was one of the largest subway franchisees um, and I was doing it to fill retail space back in the day. Yeah. And the way I did that was by bought, by selling off homes. So mm-hmm. I, I just perfected our business model, um, stopped doing bullshit stuff that I knew people didn't like. And I really yeah. paid attention to the details. And when I did that, houses kept selling. Yeah. Because people, they're still buying. Mm -hmm. They're just buying the quality. So you just have to be the quality builder that people are looking for. Yeah. Because then it's the same price that everybody else is is selling them for. Yeah. And they'll buy your product because it's the same price, but it's better than everybody else's. All right. Give me one of your best stories. On single family houses or just in general? career-wise, like best deal? Yeah. You know, I mean, the 2008 recession, man, I wish I would have known more about how you get wealthy in recessions and I would have taken... I took advantage of it, but not to the magnitude that I, I wish I would have. And that's what I've been telling people about what's happening now. Like we're crushing it right now because I know what, what's going to be on the other side of all this. Um, you know, I'm building multifamily developments for free right now, basically because the values are so low. My stabilized values are barely meeting my construction costs. So it feels like I'm working for free, but in five years, man, three years, even two years, when I start doing cash out refis, I'm going to have a frigging heyday. And I learned this from 2008 because I started, I went to Phoenix and I put a portfolio together of single family homes. Phoenix got hit so hard. And you guys here in Vegas got hit hard. Yeah. You guys probably got hit harder than Phoenix, but man, it was depressing. I'd come over here. There was homeless people all over the streets, Sahara Boulevard, just freaking tense, which probably looks like it does today. Yeah. But in those day and ages, it didn't, the, what we see today wasn't as prevalent as it, mm. as it is today. Yeah. So when you see tents, when you saw tents on the streets, it, it now you see them on the streets in every city across the United States, pretty much. But in those days and age, you didn't see them like you did today. So when you saw like Sahara Boulevard full with tents and stuff, it was like, holy shit. Right. Mm-hmm. So I went to Phoenix. Um, and I was a little more familiar. I was doing stuff here, but I was more invested in Phoenix. I put a portfolio of 12 single family homes together and 64 um, units of fourplexes. I was paying between 32 and $40,000 per fourplex. And I, I was buying single family homes for between twenty eight and thirty five thousand dollars per home, and I was renting them for between nine hundred and eleven hundred dollars per month. That's really good. Yeah, so I was about eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars into this entire portfolio. <clears throat> I did a, I did a, uh, I, I financed it all into one portfolio loan. Um, I was making about twenty some thousand dollars a month in rental income, and my uh, my note on it was about five thousand a month. I was taking home about thirteen thousand a month in just cash flow. Damn. After I serviced all the debt and um, that money was paying for my retail centers. It was one of many things that were paying for the retail centers. The subway started paying for them. The, I opened up beauty salons, but I was taking that money out of those rents and I was servicing bad debt on mm-hmm. assets I had built pre-recession mm-hmm. that almost took me under. Uh, it's trash can money. I just call it trash can money because you throw that shit at the interest payments and yeah. you weren't making anything on it. And at the time, it friggin' felt like I was uh, like I was just working for free. It sucked. I felt like my net worth hadn't went up in five years. And then in two thousand um, in two thousand fifteen, I decided I was going to sell off that portfolio. And in two thousand sixteen, I sold off the whole portfolio for three point nine million dollars, eight fifty in. So yeah. that in itself was already a win. Um, so I, I crushed it with that. Mm-hmm. But then I was like, okay, I'm going to have this tax liability. So I did for the first time a 1031 exchange. I bought an 84-unit apartment complex in Tolleson, Arizona. I still own it now. Um, bought it for $7.8 million. Um, I went from commercial broker for multifamily commercial brokers. To, I, I, I met every commercial broker in multifamily in Phoenix at the time. 
um, to learn the game, mm-hmm. right? And I didn't, inv- I didn't have any investors. I did it on my own. I didn't know about syndication, didn't know about any of that, sh- that shit at the time. And I went and bought this, bought this property. Didn't even know it was a value add property, but it was a nice apartment complex. And, um, and I didn't even think I could get it. And, um, and Joe, this guy, Joe with the Orion group, he helped me out with it. And, um, we landed up crushing it one offer in, he sold that apartment complex to this, uh, to the uh, reef that owned it, but it was the armpit of their portfolio because everything they owned was like 200 units or, or greater. Mm-hmm. But they had this little 84 unit that he had sold to them. He had sold it to them for four point something million and I'm going to buy it for 7.8. So they already had some upside plus the cash flow mm-hmm. that they had owned it for like six years or whatever it was. And um, and so I ended up buying this this thing and um, and I was scared to death. And it starts cash flowing right away. I start getting checks. I, I'm, a, I'm an SOB when it comes to management and customer service. Mm-hmm. So I, um, but I did the, I did make the mistake of firing the property management company and that they had on board. And then I tried self-managing it. Wrong move. And um, you're like, this is a good idea. Let me manage all the yeah, units. Let me, let me manage 84 <laughs> units in house, man. My office is going crazy. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I'm like, shit. So, um, so I was like, wrong move. So then within a few months, we're like, screw that property management company. We had such nightmares with those, with all that garbage I owned with property management companies. Yeah. That's why I had done that, mm. right? Um, but this was a different asset class. It wasn't yeah. Class D garbage that you're renting <laughs> in uh, bad areas of town. This was like a good area of town, downtown yeah. Tolleson. Um, so then I learned about property management, and um, uh, in 2020, we did a cash out refi on that thing, and it appraised for 15.1 million. Damn. So you take $850,000 and you take it, turn it into a $15 million asset. Wow. That's a W. Yeah. That's the power of real estate. Yep. And and, and timing, bro. Yeah. Not just real estate, but the t- power of real estate at the right time. Yeah. And so we're living through that right now. Um, different v- different beast, but, um, but cap rates are doing that for people right yeah. now. Values yeah. are getting crushed. Yeah. What do you see as the biggest mistake that you see beginner investors make? Uh, they have, oh man, so many beginner investors, either two, one of two things, they never execute because they, they, they overanalyze. That's, yeah. that's a big deal. Um, they, they don't believe in themselves. They're the issue. Um, and second, they have shiny object syndrome. They're trying to do everything everybody's doing that they've had wins in. Yeah. They're, they're all over the friggin' place. Yeah. They need to get, they need to focus. They need to get honed in on something that they know for sure has returns. Got it. That are safe returns. What about, uh, I will say, not beginner. What's above beginner? Intermediate. What's the biggest yeah. mistake you see intermediate investors make? Like people making five hundred. They a make million worse dollars. mistakes than novice investors. They get sloppy. Yeah, that's they get true. it. Everybody does. Yeah, and you're like fucking. I'm bulletproof. I'm a badass. I'm making money. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And you're not telling yourself this, but you're you're acting in that fashion. Hundred percent. Because you're not underwriting stuff the way you should. You think yes. every deal is a good deal. You think that you're buying stuff rigorously because you think that it's your last deal and only deal. Yeah. Um, so you go through this, this, this frenzy of, a uh, of a uh, carelessness. That, yeah. Um, and deal or, drunk. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you make stupid mistakes. Yep. And so many median investors do that. Yeah. I did it. Um, I did it with land. That's why I still own a shit ton of land from pre 2008 mm-hmm. because I bought all this land thinking that, that I, that would, that the earth was going to run out of land to build house houses on. Mm-hmm. So every time I found a good deal on a piece of land, I bought it. But what I thought was a good deal on a piece yeah. of land. Now I own all this land that I still can't build on. Yeah. Oh, so, so, so anyways, we all make those dumb mistakes. But that's probably the biggest mistake. Um, and they don't learn how to truly underwrite stuff. Mm. Um, you you really got to learn how to underwrite things like a financial institution, like a bank. 
Yeah. You know, because the bank, it's like, it's like we're here in Vegas, <clears> and <throat> who wins in, in in the casinos? The house, right? Yeah, the house always wins. The bank's the house. Yeah. So if the bank, you have to do what the bank's doing. Yeah. So if you learn how to underwrite, like the bank's underwrite, the banks are your friends. When you yeah. learn how, um, and I used to feel like they were my enemy, right? Like, you know, so I'm like playing sneaky around them. No, if the bank doesn't like the deal, there's a reason they don't like the deal. You should find out why they don't like that deal. Yeah. There might be something you should be concerned with. What about... Last question. How does someone go from being worth a million dollars to a hundred million dollars? Um, you gotta you got to partner with you got so there's that's a a big question, right? So there's a lot to it. Not just partner. The way we did it is you have to have strategic partners that allows you to scale. And you gotta use other people's money. That's how you do it. Okay. Because it, if you're only using your money, your limited resources are bottlenecking you. Mm-hmm. You can only do so much with your capital, even if you're rich and even if you're making money. Yeah. When you start utilizing other people's money, it yeah. opens up doors and avenues that um, that gives you scale. Mm-hmm. Um, when you partner strate- with strategic partners that bring in um, valuable attributes that um, in resources that frees up time, it gives you the ability to specialize in what you do best, mm-hmm. them what they do best, and to get, together you can scale in magnitudes. Got it. So partner. um, strategic partners are really important, and um, and other people's money is probably the two most important things. Got it. All right. Well, if people want to reach out to you or find you, where do they go? Um, I'm sure my name is in the cliff notes. You guys yeah. can uh, just Google Jerome Maldonado. We're everywhere. We're all over every social media platform on Instagram. We got hacked last year, so it's the Jerome Maldonado now. Okay. And um, but everywhere else is just Jerome Maldonado. Beautiful. All right, guys. This was the Wealthy Investor Podcast. We are out. Peace.